almost fell when I got up. Kind of reminded me falling, going down the wave, falling, getting up. It is great to be here. Before I start, just a couple quick announcements. Number one, thanks for praying for me last year. It was a hard year for me, and I know many of you prayed for me, and I'm glad to be here preaching to you, so thank you for that. Secondly, I hope you know how rare it is to find a Bible teaching pastor. Someone that will teach the Bible verse by verse, uh, preaching Christ every single Sunday. And you know you have that here with Pastor Drew. Uh, people drive for miles, hours to find such a rich uh, Bible teaching pastor. And so I hope you encourage Drew. I hope you think to yourself, you know, I'm so thankful. It's a gift from God's hand that I have a Bible teaching pastor. Aren't you glad for Drew? All right, I'm very glad as well. So this morning... I probably have some good news and some bad news. So let me ask you this way to start. Is there meaning to life? Oh, that's too broad. Let's put it this way. What's the meaning of your life? Does it matter? Do you matter? Does it matter that you're alive? One man wrote, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. Life's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and what? Fury. Mark Twain said just before he died, a myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. Death comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them, and they vanish from a world where they're of no consequence, a world which will lament for them a day and forget them forever. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes as we address this problem, what is the meaning of life? Can we have any enjoyment, any joy, any satisfaction knowing life is so difficult? I mean, the good news about Twain, at least he recognizes there's a problem, right? At least he recognizes that it's just not all white picket fences. And so this week and next week, we'll be in the book of Ecclesiastes. I know Drew usually preaches about one verse a week, you know, nice and slow, take it easy. We're gonna do two chapters today. So uh, you better get your seatbelts on. We're going to do chapters 1 and 2 as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's going to be a lot of kind of maybe negative, sour, dour things to start. And then there's going to be relief at the end and joy as we work through the book of Ecclesiastes. One of my goals this morning is this. I'd like you to go home this week and reread chapters 1 and 2, knowing what you know from this morning, and be encouraged by that very chapter, those two chapters, Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. It is important for us as we approach this book and think about how do we interpret this wisdom literature, it's called. I want you to remember that this is a Christian book. You should read this as a Christian. One of the biggest fails in interpretation with Ecclesiastes is people don't read it like a Christian. They read it like maybe a rabbi that doesn't believe in Jesus. And so we're reading this book because we know there's later revelation. We know something else happened. I went to my friend's room a few months ago. He was dying, his family was there, and his eyes were kind of closed in the morphine haze, and I said to my friend, are you afraid to die? 
And he could just kind of shake his head no. I said, Ray, I'm glad for that. Because Jesus loves you. He died for you. He was raised for you. And there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, including you, Ray Johnson. You can trust God. You can take him at his word. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he has even given you faith to, the belief, to believe that. And so I said, rest, my friend. If you don't read Ecclesiastes, knowing that about the resurrection, knowing who God is, and we heard today, do we not, in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8 about this great triune God, if you just read it with your head down, kind of with blinders on, you ever watch a, a horse and, and they don't want the horse to look left or look right and they're, they're running and they're racing, what do they have on their eyes or by their eyes? They're either called blinkers or blinders. And so... They want, they want to run in a certain way so they don't see things. It's almost like if we're not careful, we live in this world and we have blinders on and we forget this, this eternal reality that Jesus Christ is alive. Did you know Jesus is going to come back? Amen. And we need to remember that. And Ecclesiastes is almost like this. You ever go to the beach? It's foggy. That's every day, right? <laughs> so, so you go and it's kind of overcast and hasn't burned, over, burned off yet. And you think, it's the middle of the day. It's summer. I want to have a jacket on. It's cold. And all of a sudden, the sun comes out, and you just feel warm and nice and good, right? Most of Ecclesiastes, you have to have your coat on. But there's a few times in Ecclesiastes, including chapter 2 today, where the sun's going to come out, and you're going to go, oh, this is wonderful. I see things rightly. So the goal today is Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, and you're going to see some problems, and then you're going to see a solution. Let's start off in verse 1. And he gives the introduction there, of course, does he not? The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And you can study it all you'd like. Most likely it's Solomon in his later years. Some argue, but certainly here he gives in this book, he's called the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And what does he say right from the get-go? Here is the problem. Problem one, life is frustrating, fleeting, and vain. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now this word vanity in the original, it's kind of ambiguous depending on context. So it really has three meanings. One, it means puzzling. You look at the world and you scratch your head and you go, what is going on here? This is an enigma. I can't understand it. It's mysterious. Another way we could translate it is vanity here, meaninglessness frustration, vexation. You look at the world and you just kind of get tense. And the third one that's used very often, the third meaning is vanity should be translated, it's just temporal. Doesn't last. You know, you go to the dollar store, I mean the dollar 25 store, and you put the little, <laughs> I went there last night, I go, dollar 25 store. And you buy some bubbles, you know, you have a kid and you get that little $1 deal and you put the little plastic thing in you blow the bubble and it goes for a little while and it's gone. That's vanity. Matter of fact, if you look back in chapter 31 of Proverbs, the chapter just before, does it not say in verse 30 of Proverbs 31:30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Is beauty vain? If you have a pretty wife, it's certainly not vain, but it's temporal. And so when we look at the word vanity, it can either mean puzzling, frustrating, are temporal, and I think that will help you as you work through the book of Ecclesiastes. And he says at the very beginning, 
Everything is vain. Everything is perplexing. Everything doesn't last or nothing lasts. And what he's trying to drive you to do is to get you to ask the right questions. Good teachers will do that. And he starts off at the beginning this umbrella statement, everything's vain. Look at verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I mean, what do you have to show for it? I've been working since I'm 13 years old. What do I have to show? What do you, what do you have to show? You just work and work and work and work. What advantage do we have? When I was in the hospital thinking I was going to die, I thought the only thing I own is my iPhone. And I had to borrow a cord to plug it in. And I couldn't even take that with me. We work and work and work and work, and you go back to work again tomorrow, and what? Where's the text, verse 3, under the sun? You could think maybe secular, or you could think this is a fallen world, and that's probably the right interpretation. This is a fallen world. Adam has affected and infected the world with sin, and life is very, very difficult. Does this resonate with you as I read Romans 8, verses 19 and 20? For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation which was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. We live under the sun. It's been affected by Adam in the fall, and creation even groans. I love some of these questions that the Bible asks, very blunt, very direct, reminds me of the Lord Jesus when he said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Reminds me of Job. How then can man be right before God? Or the writer of Hebrews, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And here he asks the question, Solomon does, what does it gain us? What's the advantage? What do you gain by all your toil? In Chicago, there's a Cook County sewer employee who is famous for this saying. Are you ready? Here's the sewer employee's famous saying. I dig the ditch to get the money, to buy the food, to get the strength to dig the ditch. (laughs) Be warm to be filled. And tomorrow's the same. And then what the writer does is he he moves to verses 4 through 11 with these kind of rhythms to kind of this get you to feel how things don't add up. Things are vain. He goes right forward here and showing us all this vanity and how there's no gain. How do you know there's no gain? Verse 4, and you can just read this very quickly too. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. I mean, one generation after another after another, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and then they're just gone. Seem to make no difference in the scheme of things. Verse 5, same thing. Sun rises, sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. I mean, it is a cycle of futility. Now, only the pagans will know what I'm quoting from here, but lots of people talk about this kind of frustration in life, even secular music artists. So you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. Who wrote that? 
you pagans. I knew. I knew. Life under the sun, it's like you go down to the boardwalk and you go on the merry-go-round and around and around you go, but it's not so merry. It's like a frustration go round and around and around. God has, has, has overseen all this and is there any hope? That's what everything's driving to. I mean, when our head's down and we're only looking, and, and to think in a New Testament way, when we're not walking by faith, the just shall live by what? Faith. Right? And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It just seems like this is, the world's broken. I mean, matter of fact, verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. You'd think if rivers and streams had been filling up the ocean for so long, they'd finally be overflowing, wouldn't you? Think that? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. Verse 8, eyes not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Think about technology. People love technology today. Remember how awesome the iPhone 4 was? <laughs> oh, yeah, I do too. <laughs> Verse 9, what has been is what will be. I mean, you could sing Kesarah Sarah here too. What has been done is all that will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of what is said, see, this is new? It is already been in the ages before us. I mean, history isn't going anywhere. People scurry and squabble and fight, and where are we going? There's a poem by Stephen Crane, and it haunts me, and it describes Ecclesiastes' life under the sun. I saw a man pursuing the horizon. Round and round they sped. I was disturbed at this. I accosted the man. It's futile, I said. You can never. He lied. You lie, he cried and ran on. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things, yet to be among those who come after. Rob was very kind to me uh, as he introduced me. Uh, but in years to come, it will be Mike Avendroth who? Gone. We're all gone. Life matters. Does it matter? What is going on? Not only is life frustrating, number two, wisdom doesn't help. Solomon goes at it this way. Okay, life is frustrating, so maybe if I study, maybe if I learn, maybe if I have wisdom, maybe if I, I have philosophy, I can figure this out because the way things present themselves, it's not too good. But instead of helping, it hurts because in this regard, probably ignorance is bliss. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. So by the way, here's a first-hand account. And if anybody could know on earth, I could know because I'm the king. I have ultimate resources. I have ultimate wisdom. I think if anybody could figure it out, I could figure it out. And he calculates to try to figure this out. Verse 12, excuse me, verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to children of man to be busy with. I'm going to try to figure this out. I'm going to study uh, philosophy, Socrates, Aristotle. I, I'm going to try to figure this out. And verse 14, I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. 
Now, when I grew up in Nebraska uh, and we were bored inside as kids, my dad would always say this, and maybe some of you know this phrase. My dad would say to me when we were bored, he would say, go chase cars. Anybody ever? No, that's just Nebraska. Go tip over cattle, we probably also said. I mean, when you're running after wind, do you catch it? You're chasing cars, you can't get there. And even if I study, even if I have wisdom, I, I, something's still lacking. I mean, this is pop culture, is it not? They know the problem. They don't know the solution that we'll get to in a moment, but they know the problem. I still haven't found what I'm what? Looking for. I can't get no. You guys know a lot of secular songs. <laughs> but the world gets it. They understand. We understand. Verse 15, what's crooked can't be made straight. What's lacking cannot be counted. I, mean, I don't have to even like exposit this. You just work through and you think, you know, life is difficult. He said in, my, his, in his heart, verse 16, I've got wisdom. I've got knowledge. Verse 17, it's striving after wind. I guess maybe knowledge isn't so good. Maybe ignorance is, in fact, bliss. For in much wisdom, verse 18, is much vexation. But he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Don't believe the Greek philosopher that says only the educated are free because it's just going to cause more problems for you. third problem is the answer is not found in pleasure. The answer is not found in pleasure. Take a look at verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2. Can you imagine? We got one chapter done, all right? I feel like getting in a three-point stance. <laughs> Football, except if I did at my age, I couldn't get up. So we just stay this way. Solomon is writing, and he's wanting you to see these exact same things, that if you want an enjoyable life, a life that doesn't have vexation and frustration and everything else, the blinders not, better not be on because there's more to living than this life. There are invisible realities that are going on. And so when you look for joy in this life, guess what? You know what it's like? Maybe I could help you this way. If you ever struggle with assurance of salvation, am I really saved or not? When you chase assurance, you don't seem to get it flies away. But when you chase Christ Jesus by faith, the dove of assurance just sets on your shoulders, Spurgeon said. And in this section, it's going to be the exact same thing. When you think life is possessions and pleasures and hedonism, you're not going to get satisfaction. But when you chase the Lord Christ by faith alone, guess what? You're going to get to enjoy things in life. You get them both. Let's take a look at it. Here's a general statement. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I mean, this is classic, Adam and Eve. If we just had one more tree, we'd be happy, right? I just need one more. So he starts to try all these things. Temporarily they work, but they don't fulfill. They don't satisfy the soul. We're made in God's image and likeness, are we not? And, and nothing less than communion and union with the triune God will do. So you say, okay, what about laughter? It's mad. I mean, short-term relief, at least if we watch a sitcom, we're happy for a while. But does it work, ultimately? 
think Robin Williams. What about pleasure? What use is it? What has it accomplished? <clears throat> and then he does something interesting. Don't think he's just going to go get drunk. That's not what he's talking about here. Verse 3, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Here's what he says. Psalm 104, wine gladdens a man's heart. I'm going to strategically drink some, not in excess, but strategic to see if that will give me a good lens to look at life through. I'm not going to drown my sorrow in alcohol, but I've got the best vineyards, I've got the best wines, and I'm going to just see if maybe that's going to be the solution. Well, he just keeps going because what satisfies? I made great works, I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I'm into building. I mean, what satisfies you think of a little child? And sometimes uh, as my four children were growing up and they were little, I would babysit and I would do all the stuff and I would play and everything else. But there was a time when they were hungry that I couldn't really help them. You know, you do the dad pinky thing. You do some little toy and they're sucking on the toy. But they're going to want something that I can't give. I guess I could go get a bottle. But they want milk. Nothing else will do. And here, it doesn't matter what you try to give for satisfaction, it's all empty. Maybe Greenpeace will work. Maybe Earth Day stuff will work. Verse 5, gardens, parks, planted, fruit trees, pools, trees. And you'll see the refrain there, for myself, for myself, for myself, for myself. No real satisfaction. I mean, if you got the money, what can you buy? You can actually buy people, male and female slaves, flocks, herds, everything for myself i just got all these things you know what i like singing i provided verse eight male and female singers and then of course pleasures of men many concubines how many concubines did solomon have he had 700 wives and 300 300 you know what we call concubines don't you if you're a kid you remember it easier 300 not concubines but porcupines when your little kid asks you, Dad, what's a concubine? That you just tell them it's like a porcupine. That's all you need to know. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. You see the world rushing for ultimate fulfillment in sex outside of marriage. It doesn't last. William Blake said, less than everything cannot satisfy a man. Others have said the cure to hedonism is to try it. Verse 10, he saw something, he bought it, he got it. Question, dear congregation, how many times has the word God, Lord, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim been used so far? You're going to see one time in this section of chapter 1 and 2 so far that mentions God. It's insightful. Verse 11, it's vanity, striving after wind. You can't get anything. What does it lead to? Well, it's going to lead not this kind of life, but eventually life leads to death. That's the next problem. That's the fourth problem. I mean, life is frustrating. Wisdom doesn't help. Pleasure and possessions don't help. And death is inevitable. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. 
You want to know the ultimate frustration, the ultimate vexation? It's death when we die. Verse 16, for of the wise as the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all who have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. It doesn't matter if you're Plato or Socrates or Aristotle, you're still going to die. Doesn't that make it frustrating? Every one of us is going to die? Gordon Keaty said, death is the wall that under the sun secularism cannot climb. And then there's fruit to all this. The fifth problem is hatred, despair, and you can't sleep at night. I know what you're saying, Mike. Where's the good news? But this is life under the sun. This is life with the blinders on. Verse 17, so I hated life. I mean, true or false, most men live lives of quiet desperation. That's true. Henry David Thoreau. Be careful of those people out in Massachusetts, but he's probably right when he said that. Working, trouble. Look at verse 20. Blinders on life does this. It makes you despair of life. I gave my heart up to despair over all the toils on my labor under the sun. I mean, a life that's inwardly focused and not wanting to walk by faith and then obey God by loving him and loving neighbor, this is what happens And then verse 23, and then your mind races, you can't sleep at night. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Your body's tired, you can't sleep. And by the way, if you ever wanna give a personal testimony about what you were like before you got saved, I present to you Ecclesiastes one and two. Isn't this our testimony or something close? Yeah. Trying to find love, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find fulfillment. As image bearers, we'd never find it unless it's in the triune God. And so he gives the problem, and he gives the problem full weight. He doesn't skirt it. And you say, is there a right way to think? Is there any good news? And now we come to the good news. As frustrating as life is, as vexating as life is, is vexating a word? Causing you much, much vexation. As temporal as this life is, isn't there anything good, anything wonderful that we could have? God's hardly mentioned it all. And now, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Eating and drinking. It's a wonderful biblical shorthand for satisfaction in life. Can I have satisfaction in this life knowing what I know about the fall, knowing what I know about death and everything else? And the answer is yes. And do you see what it says here in verse 25? For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So I flip it around. With him, with the triune God, can you eat? Can you have enjoyment? Can you have satisfaction? And the answer is yes and yes and yes. Listen to Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70, even by reason of strength, 80. 
Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Yes, we're going to die, but we know about the resurrection. We, we know about what's going to go on in the future. There's vanity, there's vanity, there's vanity. What do we do in light of the resurrection? First Corinthians chapter 15. We work, and we know that toil for the Lord and work for the Lord and service for the Lord isn't in vain. We can actually have enjoyment on this earth. Life, did you know? Your life is a gift from the triune God, from his hand, from sovereign grace. God wants you to enjoy your life, but if you don't factor in the Lord and seek to live for yourself, there's going to be problems. Here's what I try to do. I try to do self-diagnosis. So you're driving down the road in a car, for instance, and a yellow light goes on. You're like, I'll do that later. A red light goes on, what do you do? Hey, I, so I, we have to pull over right now. So in life, when you feel subjectively frustrated and annoyed, and what's that word we use? Vexed. It should be a red light for you going, I think my emotions, I think my thoughts, I think my thinking's in the wrong place. I'm thinking wrongly, so I feel badly. And so when I feel that frustration, I think, oh, repentance is the key. Thinking rightly is the key. Instead of thinking, I get the short end of the stick of life, look at all that I get. You know the difference between joy and depression? It's simple. The world says, you deserve it all, and it delivers this. The difference, depression, vexation. The Bible says, me included, you deserve to go to hell. The wages of sin is death. It's appointed for man once to die and then what? Judgment. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. That's what I deserve. But because of the Lord Jesus and our simple trust in him and rest in him and receiving him, we get what? We get heaven. We get the spirit of God dwelling in us. We get the hope of eternal life. And the difference is what? Joy. So go have a good lunch. This is the first time in the history of Santa Cruz Baptist where I want you to start thinking about lunch right now. <laughs> and enjoy. What, what does the text say? It's from his hand. I hope you think my wife is a gift from the triune God's hand. I hope she knows that. I hope you think my husband is a gift from the triune God's hand. My children. My taste buds. God, you gave me all these, my eyes to see. I can hear, I can listen to music, I can go down to the beach. I, I'm not in hell, everything I get is from your hand. That's a lot different than head down, everything's full of frustration and vanity. Jesus said, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing, that's true. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. I'm a sinful fallen dad, and I like to give gifts to my children. Do you, do you like to give gifts to your children and see them all happy? I especially remember when they were really little. I don't know the time that you're supposed to give ice cream to children, but it's earlier than you think. <laughs> 
And I remember just getting an ice cream cone and kind of making a little thing of the top that would just fit perfectly in that six-month-old kid's mouth. And all of a sudden, they're happy. I'm like, this is, this is a swirl ice cream cone from Dairy Queen. This is the best. I'll eat the chocolate off the dip part, but give the ice cream to the kid. And, and you think, I get pleasure giving gifts to my children. And if God did not spare his son, the Lord Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 3, won't he freely give you everything else? He gives the greatest gift, salvation, the Lord Jesus, the eternal son, took on human flesh, lived for you, died for you, was buried for you, was raised for you. He's given you everything. He's given you eternal life, free for us, costly for him. Wouldn't he give you everything else? That's why we don't have to pray every single meal, but we go out to eat and we pray, right? Because we think, Lord, thank you for that. In New England, they don't know about prayers. They think we're looking for contacts. You know, you're in the South and everybody's praying at lunch at, at uh, Betty's Burger or something, and they kind of just wait for you. In New England, they're like, excuse me, did you lose something? <laughs> if you do a little word study on enthusiasm, I know it's pagan, but it's interesting. Entheos, to put God into something. You think, I'm just going to see my life through the lens of walking by faith, and then everything I have is a gift from God's hand, and therefore I can eat and drink and have enjoyment with him. Did you know God is light, and in him there's no darkness? Did you know that the goodness of God endures continually, Psalm 52? Thomas Manton said, God is good, good of himself, which nothing else is. For all creatures are good only by participation. God is essentially good, but goodness itself even. The creature is good with a super added quality, but it, God is good at his essence. Even the original Saxon word, God, G-O-D, comes from the good, G-O-O-D. Because God is so good. When I officiate weddings, I always ask the fiance and her, uh, the groom-to-be and the bride-to-be in my office, I always say to him in front of her, could you give me four reasons why you choose your bride? And she's looking over like, this is going to be good. And he doesn't know if it's a spiritual question or just, you know, she's pretty. So he starts with a spiritual thing. She loves the Lord. She walks by faith. She treats her parents well. Sometimes they'll say to me, this is true, she's a five-point Calvinist. So romantic. And then I say, is she pretty? Oh, yeah, she's beautiful. And I said, you know what, that's the right way to pick a wife. Because she's attractive, inside and outside. She's spiritually mature, she looks good, and you think, you know what, that's how I pick. But remember when we were hearing Romans 5 today, read for scripture reading? When God sets his love on us, were we lovable? Were we pretty? Were we handsome? I think of four things that I see in Romans where it says we were helpless, we were ungodly, we were enemies, and we were sinners. That's how God loved. He loved you when you were a sinner, an enemy, helpless, and ungodly. Do you think if he loved you like that, before you were saved, he's going to love you any less now that you're saved? 
Ecclesiastes 9 says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Enjoy life with the woman you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you. God is not a cosmic killjoy. God is not the fundamentalist God. No, 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 no. Everything in time and place, that's right, but it's from the gift of God. Everything you have, from laughter to friends to family to clothing to beauty, your body, it's from God's hand. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from your own hand's work. No, no. It's from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Can you imagine if you're a Christian, here's how good God is to you. Of his own will, God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God made you born again. First Peter says he caused you to be born again. He adopted you into his family. And then he says, enjoy. Yes, with an eye to fearing God, and we'll learn about that next week. The fear of the Lord is important. But we don't have a fear of the Lord like a crouching, servile fear. We have fear of, a, of the Lord who, God is such a good father, a great father, I want to honor him. And I want to obey him. And I want to please him. Do these verses surprise you? Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Enjoy. I mean, think if we had to go work for our salvation. How could we go enjoy anything? Because we'd be thinking, you know what? Hmm, it's like when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door. Oh, well, they don't anymore because it's COVID, so they just send letters. But when they used to come to my door and they'd knock, Sometimes it would be nice, sometimes not so nice. Just depends. Nice mic, mean mic. <laughs> and, and I just think to myself, do you have any good news? Of course, they didn't have good news, and I told them the good news. But sometimes when I was born on the mean side, I would say, is it true only 144,000 of you get to the special heaven? Yes, that's true. I said, well, you better start working harder because there's been a lot more diligent Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door than you. <laughs> And if you've got to work to get into heaven, there's no time to eat and sleep and enjoy yourself. But my salvation's full and free. It's been done by the work of another. It's gospel done by Christ Jesus, sent by the Father. I have the Spirit of God indwelling in me. And my salvation's done. I don't have to work anymore. It is finished. And if it's finished, I can enjoy life. And so can you. Who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Maybe we should even say, Lord, thank you for even the ability to enjoy things in life as a gift from you. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? Glory, Glory of God. That's right. Ecclesiastes is one of these books that you look at the world and say, it's got the right analysis to the problem. And then you think, I need to take one more step past that. Because if I'm not thinking rightly, I'm part of the problem. And now I need to be thinking in a New Testament Christian fashion about who my great God is and who my Father is and how the Lord Jesus, born of a woman, born under law, that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. I am redeemed 
He took the curse for me. I no longer have to obey to somehow get into heaven. I obey as a fruit and as a thank offering and as gratitude, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And now, Lord, thank you. Thank you. I know people that read Ecclesiastes and they get depressed. But a few times the sun comes out and when it does, you bask in it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.